Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and the things we're not going to buy this week. I'm Joe Simpson. And I'm Dave Ramsey. How's it going, Dave? Doing pretty good, Joe. How you doing? (laughs) You sound a little off. I I quit caffeine again. Mm. Um, That explains a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, most of the last, say, four days have been spent largely unconscious. Hmm. Um, so yeah, not great for productivity for the first few days. Yeah. Yeah. I quit quitting caffeine a couple years ago <laughs> and I've uh, been sticking to that pretty well. It's like with that one time where I gave up vegetarianism for Lent. Ah. Uh, so what have you been working on or have you been working on aside from caffeine withdrawal? <laughs> Prior to that point, got a lot of cool stuff done. Um, first one was last episode, we talked a bunch about the two big outstanding issues that I'd been beating my head against. Mm-hmm. Um, one being dark mode support for Windows. And the second being issues with D3 and dragging things around the relationship graph. Mm-hmm. And it turns out... Both of those are fixed. Nice. I actually ended up knocking out both of those in a relatively short period of time, which always makes it feel like you just wasted huge amounts of time beating your head against a wall. Yeah. And I actually ended up kind of fixing both within about four hours. Yeah, it's just like my retrospective timelines thing. I was like, this is going to take so long. I better really plan out all the work. And I spend like... A weekend doing all the planning and then like two hours doing the work. Yeah. yeah. Oh, crap. Um, dark mode for Windows. The The best part of that answer was having you do the menus. Mm-hmm. Because, boy, I'll tell you, that just made that whole process way easier for me. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the Windows... The FM comparison Windows menus are actually in JavaScript. And then the window Chrome is still in WPF, kind of, because I added support for a library called Ma Apps, M-A-H Apps. And it's a library for doing kind of themed UIs in WPF. So all that stuff I was beating my head against where this particular property is not exposed, so I don't have any easy ability to just set the color for the thing. Mm-hmm. Ma Apps basically exposes all of that. Nice. It just, they built their own set, a replacement set of UI widgets all the way up to the level of just Windows. And all of those properties are exposed. So I can just go, hey, make a new window, set the title bar color to this, set the title bar text to this done and it was just it it, it took a couple hours to get it done but all things considered based upon everything that i've been beating my head against for so long it was very very easy Mm -hmm. and in the process we got this cool title bar for windows so the the window title bar is our fm comparison fm perception purple Mm-hmm. In Windows. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is a really good solution. Rather than trying to tint the title bar light gray or dark gray mm-hmm. for light mode, it's the same color all the time. And it looks mm-hmm. really good in both modes. I think it was a very good... Like, it didn't occur to me to do that. And then you sent me a <laughs> screenshot of it. Like, how about this? I'm like, that looks really good. <laughs> should definitely do that. We should do that on the Mac, too, which I don't think we can yet. But maybe... <clears throat> I think you said maybe in Big Sur... Yeah, maybe Big Star has those tint colors. I'm not sure that you can pick a nice, super bright purple as your tint yeah. color, or if you do, what happens. Honestly, it was an accident, because mm-hmm. I didn't know exactly what colors we wanted to use for light and dark once I had manual control over it. So I just set the purple and sent it to you as kind of a joke, and you went, that looks great. And I went, yeah. yeah, I kind of agree. And Windows is smart enough to turn that purple into a gray when the app is not in the foreground. Oh. So when you have something else in front of it, you're not staring at the purple bar the whole time. Gotcha. 
I usually run most Windows apps full screen, so I never noticed. Yeah. Um, the slightly, well, not so much bad news, but the the wah wah part of it was uh, that my apps, as I said, is a full replacement for all the window Chrome and such like that. So it probably would have done the menus for us. Mm-hmm. That that would have just kind of gotten taken care of, but. I'm okay with this answer. The answer we've got is good. There may be a value at some point in the future to say, let's bring the window or the menus back to the window side of things. Mm-hmm. Just so we don't have this chunk of JavaScript that's only used on one platform. Yeah. But yeah, right now there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of places in the code where it's doing some conditions for, are we in Windows and then do this, adding an entire you know, navigation bar effectively across the top of the screen and then all of the offset calculations for everywhere else in the app. So like on the sidebar and the item list and detail cards, like all of mm-hmm. those have to compensate for that loss of real estate. Yeah. So that that's on kind of the someday maybe list. Um, so the other part was that dragging and scaling on the relationship graph. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to suck at describing this, so I apologize. Um, in the D3, you make an SVG, and then in the SVG, you start putting little graphical elements. And you composite a larger diagram out of all these little graphical elements. And as part of doing the dragging and scrolling in a manner that I didn't fully understand at the time, what you actually end up doing is putting all of those in kind of a little wrapper element. Okay. So there's mm-hmm. a, there's a, think of it as a group. Very often the, the tag that's used is just G. There's a G tag. And that contains all of your graphical elements. And so the idea is that you can kind of grab the group and move it around without messing with the SVG that contains all of it. Hmm. That's how it's supposed to work. My problem was being caused by the fact that some of my operations were actually moving the SVG and some of them were moving the group in the SVG. Mm, Okay, yeah. So you're basically moving two different coordinate spaces, one within another one. Yeah, or moving the parent versus the child or whatever like that. And so when you would drag it and it would jitter back and forth, there was this mm-hmm. weird thing where the the diagram would just kind of flicker back and forth between where it had been and where you dragged it to was actually that problem where I you would start dragging and that would change the outer coordinate space which would then get registered by the group, then get sent back to the outer coordinate space again in this weird kind of loop thing. <sighs> so go meticulously through the code, find all the different spots where I do any kind of translation and make sure I'm talking explicitly to the group and not to the SVG. And just done. Everything's working perfectly smoothly. Oh, I was so happy. So yeah, then we got to start working on uh, layout object comparison. Um, or finish working on layout object comparison. <laughs> I tried to get Dave to work on this and he kept getting distracted by relationship graphs. Oh, right, right. Yeah, there was that. Okay. I started working on layout object comparison. <laughs> and... Uh, Turns out layout objects suck in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, they are weirdly different from almost everything in this XML. Um, they actually have containment. So layout objects are inside other layout objects. And from a UI perspective, that's exactly the way it is. But in all other cases in the new XML, Contained objects aren't defined inside the definition for their containers, mm-hmm. except for in layout objects. Yeah. Before you get into the details, it's also worth mentioning that this is the only 
subcategory of the system so far. Everything else mm-hmm. is a top-level category where you go to scripts or layouts and then you load an item list full of those things and then you click on an item to load the details in this one. This is the first time where we've had an additional button on the detail view that opens a new a new window or a new view over top of the current view that loads an entirely new UI for layout objects for that specific layout. So we're using like the layout ID or some kind of query string to get all the layout objects. And the way we're loading them is kind of an interesting hybrid of mm-hmm. UI of like, we've got our organization views that we made, like the two side-by-side views for things like layouts and scripts and menus. And then we also have a detail card which is unusual for this one. So we have a three column interface, two of them are organization views. You click on either one and it loads the detail card for those two related objects and highlights them both in the same place. So it's, it's it was Dave's idea, like something that was just kind of like, I think it was a, you know, idea in the bathtub moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wrote that down like maybe halfway through July, like, ah, oh, I know how we're gonna do this. And then we finally got a chance to come back to it. And like, it, it's actually pretty slick. It takes up a lot of screen real estate. So yeah. it doesn't look great on a, on a small window, but yeah. Yeah, so to do that, you gotta link the layout objects up. I mean, we gotta do that to do the comparison for them. And as a general rule, we form those links first by UUIDs and then by IDs and then by names. But the problem is in the new XML, basically none of the layouts have layout objects have names. Mm-hmm. They're all blank. Um, unless you have set a layout object name in the FileMaker inspector, then it has a name. And so what happened was ev- it, everything was failing to link by UUID. They would fail to link by ID and then everything would link by name. Because that blank matched every other blank. Oh, nice. Oops. (laughs) Perfectly happy to do that. Um, And I didn't necessarily want it to not match by name. I could have excluded that when doing the match by name. But the right answer ended up being giving them names. So if you think of two versions of a system and you add a text label to both copies of the system, the UUID is different, the ID is different, but the name that I now generate for it can be the same, saying this is a chunk of text and here is the text for it. Now Mm -hmm. we can connect those two things and it will be a good connection unless that text is actually different, in which case I'm going to call those two things different. Mm -hmm. So a lot of, I, I got to dig back into a bunch of different layers of code that I hadn't touched in a long time. This had to go all the way back to the slicer that was slicing up the XML in a little chunk so that I could assign the names at that point. And that's an extra 150 lines of code to figure out how to meaningfully name every kind of layout object. Um, And then into the thing that does the linking so that it could handle some weird variants. And then that just, it filtered all the way through. It was like I was doing these commits that would um, that would hit like five different code files at once. Which is not normal for me. Normally it's like one, maybe two files if they cross over or something like that. Just something that was funny about the, the data that you sent me. There he started processing these objects and gave me enough information to start loading them into a UI so we can start working with them. And we're kind of basing this off of the code from the organization views previously, where we had like, I think seven different row types across scripts, layout objects, menus, menu sets. And row types are just kind of like, this is a script, this is a folder or a group, this is a layout, this is a menu group, things like that. And Dave just like casually posts, oh, there are 26 new row types. <laughs> like, oh God. So I didn't even try to combine those in with the other code. This this component just got its own little snippet of code. Yeah. One new row type for each kind of layout object. Mm-hmm. And there are 
four different Lots. kinds of buttons <laughs> and eight different kinds of fields. And it's not different by field type, but by entry type. Yeah. So and the, and, the annoying one for me was it's just a, a stupid legacy thing at this point, but we have rectangle and rounded rectangle. <laughs> and that used to be a difference. Like, be, I don't know, before 12, I think, 12 or 13 when we got the corner radius thing in the inspector. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it, it's just a totally redundant thing. I understand <laughs> keeping the type in there, uh-huh. but they need to take it out of the toolbar. There's no reason you need to create a rounded rectangle at this point. Just make a rectangle and round the corners. That really annoys me. Yeah. So there's probably going to end up being almost as much code as is in outputting script steps, which, mm-hmm. if you recall, was a lot of code. It's going to be about that much to do the 20 different, 26 different kinds of layout objects. To so like good, good half an hour's worth of work then? Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> half an hour over, you know, 30, 40 days. Um, <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> so, yeah. And then we've got our change types so previously we had add delete edit and then move and move was just used on the org views and edit was just used on the normal list views Mm -hmm. now we've got edit moved (laughs) because we combine the functionality of these things and so if a thing is both edited and moved, we needed to flag both, which then fed back to the UI. This whole thing did quite a bit of kind of ping-ponging back and forth between you and I because we'd kind of get to a certain spot and then realize there was something weird about this stuff and then bounce it to you and it would come back and mm-hmm. it was fun. Um, and you already mentioned the child button type so we've we've got these row types for all the different you know um all the different kinds of data that we can try and output numbers and text and um images and things like that so that in the detail view it can put these things out side by side and make everything look good we've also got header types um for four levels of hierarchy for kind of putting headers before these rows and then we also had a note type that allows to kind of throw a comment out like a caution or something like that and now we've got a button type which actually is kind of cool because my brain like i know we don't need it or at least don't need it now but in the future i'm thinking we could have all sorts of cool different row button sets that pop in mm-hmm that do cool things. And all I've got to do is insert this one little JSON object into an array and the appropriate thing appears in the appropriate place in the flow. It's kind of awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest outstanding weirdness for these to me is a question of what order to display the layout objects in. Now, FM perception and FM comparison both do them in Z order, Mm -hmm. where the furthest back item on the layout, or if you haven't done any send to back, send to front, the first item added to the layout is the first item in the list. But, after digging a little further, realized that FileMaker actually in its hierarchical display of layout objects, does it in reverse order? Kind of. So the most recently added layout object ends up popping to the top of the list, but because contained items are inside the container, Mm -hmm. if you add an item in a container, That ends up at the top of the items inside the container, but the container still sits at the same spot in the list. Mm -hmm. And so you're kind of, once we've, once we're inside each container is its own sub list. Yeah. And so 
it's a little funky. What it means is I can't just reverse the order of the list. I can't start at the bottom of the list and go up. I've actually got to do something smart that does like all the level one items. You know, all the items that aren't containers. And then handle the containment on things. It's it's kind of obnoxious. Um, I was actually chatting about it with some of the users in the FM Perception office hours last week. And one of them asked if I could convince FileMaker to change theirs to match mine. <laughs> I was like, would that I could? Yeah. Not something I'm... I'm I, I don't have that kind of pull. Yeah, they wouldn't even give you the uh, calculation definition document that you asked for. <laughs> when you yeah. had them cornered in a room. <laughs> it was actually in a hallway. So it's tough to tough to corner somebody in a long hallway. God, do you remember, do you remember going in hallways and, and rooms and stuff? <laughs> oh yeah, and, and having a conversation with somebody face to face. Weird. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. So the biggest outstanding fun then, I mean, I, I still I still have to do all the detail output for layout objects. That is outstanding, but that is grunt work. Mm-hmm. The only complicated part of that, I think, is going to end up being um, uh, conditional formatting. <laughs> that's that's the only complicated part of that whole thing. Everything else is just crunching through the data and all the weird variants. Um, but conditional formatting will be one where I'll have to do something semi-smart to link those up properly. Um, so that if you if you removed the first conditional formatting rule in a list of rules... I need it to show the gap in the right spot, not just slide everything up one Mm -hmm. because then it will be comparing the wrong way. So yeah, that's the only tricky part of that whole thing. The rest of it is just grunt work. So the biggest outstanding thing is settings. And right now I'm sluggish enough that thinking about it sounds like it's a very, very bad idea, but I'll be into that in the next couple of days. Yeah. Yes, I guess the next or the last phase of version one is kind of power features, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. So we've got application settings, which affects the application as a whole. Then we've got configuration settings, which affect the particular configuration for the comparison or the document that the user is working on. And then generally speaking, keyboard shortcuts slash keyboard navigation slash you know non-pointer event driven ui and there's a couple other minor things that kind of tie into this but basically like ways to use fm comparison and kind of customize fm comparison to your particular set of rules and preferences Mm -hmm. and then also a good way to drive it without relying entirely on a pointer yeah and i know from fm perception some of those users are going to be ecstatic about seeing keyboard navigation in FM comparison. Mm-hmm. It's just the people who, people like you, who prefer yeah. to use their mouse as little as humanly possible. <laughs> keyboard navigation just makes them very, very happy. Yeah. So it, that's what I've been working on the last couple of days. Dave was joking with me last week that I need to slow down because he hands me a bit of work and then he thinks he's bought himself some time and then I'm done with it the next day. I'm like, what? ready for more. <laughs> so I went to work on keyboard navigation, which is basically a feature that Dave doesn't need to be involved in at all uh, other than providing input. But I don't, I'm not waiting on him for any mm-hmm. like backend code or anything. So I've been working on that. And let me say for the record... You need to moderate my enthusiasm for this feature. (laughs) Because I can work on this forever. Yeah. Like, this will no longer be FM comparison by the time I'm done. It will be the gold standard of keyboard navigation in (laughs) native apps. And FM comparison and diffing will just be incidental. (laughs) Oh, okay. 
we, incidental we, comparison or something. We, we should have a uh, discussion about that. Yeah. So <laughs> the core of what I have working, or I, I guess the, the core of what I want to work in terms of not keyboard shortcuts, but just regular keyboard navigation. So we've got our main view is a list of categories, a list of items, and a detail view. And when you first load the comparison, and if you hit the down arrow on your keyboard, I want that to go from the first category to the second category. Not selecting, but focusing. And the difference being selecting means basically like point, like hovering over and clicking something, focus being more just like hovering over something. And HTML has all of these states defined. So there is a focus kind of cursor or block that you can move around. And you can see this on any web page. And when you tab around the screen and you see different things kind of highlight or get a little frame around them, that's the focus frame. And I've got, we didn't have anything focusable previously because no, nothing was in the tab order for the sidebar. So I put everything in the tab order. Right now, the tab order just basically draws from the index as you're iterating over the arrays and gives everything a tab order. And it, it took a little bit of trickiness because the way that the category list is drawn and the fact that we're working in view and there are different versions of each category row depending on selection state and some other formatting things, we couldn't actually just navigate from one item to the next because the items that we're focusing on are inside other objects, inside another div, and that div is actually the thing that is using view binding when we're iterating over the list. And that actually ends up showing up in the DOM we're not using it for anything render-wise, but it does have to be there. And you can't use view binding with a template. So I end up writing this really weird code of like, when you push a keyboard shortcut on the category list, it says, where am I? Get my parent, get my parent's sibling and get its child. Okay. So it's like these weird chess maneuvers. And then it gets even more complicated when you are, say you're right below a category header, it says, Get, get me, get my parent, get my parent's sibling. If my parent's sibling is a header, then skip it and get its parent's previous sibling and then get its child. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm sure that didn't take any time at all. Yeah. I call this type of navigation, you can't get there from here, but if you go on back the way you came, you can get there from there. <laughs> Which is basically like giving directions in the Midwest. So yeah, that's so that's working now. I don't have it working where like you you still have to select into the sidebar to get that to start working. So I need to actually load the first focus elements at the same time when you're selecting. So right now when you you know you hit view comparison at the end of a configuration screen, it does take you straight to the three column interface and it automatically automatically selects the first category, which is kind of a fake category that we added called I think comparison metadata, mm -hmm. which is something we're still fleshing out. But um, I need to also have that be focused automatically rather than just selected like it is now. And then I got the same code working in the item list. And I guess the first thing I tried to do was register these keyboard shortcuts at the component level, which was hilarious because the components, I, I was doing it on a uh, component mounted and I ended up getting to the point where without realizing it, I was mounting the same keyboard shortcut two or three times. So I would test the app once it would work correctly. I'd change something, hit the arrow key, and then all of a sudden I'm skipping every other row. Okay, well, this is weird. <laughs> and then I'm skipping two rows. Now I'm skipping four rows. So basically the keyboard shortcut was just running multiple times per keystroke. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I ended up moving this stuff into the view.app or the app.view file for now and then doing some conditions off of that. But I need to look, kind of look into where's the best place to put this code. It, yeah, it's kind of weird. I, the, the keyboard I, shortcut 
part of this is the easiest part. It's what do we do now that we've got the input? Like the <clears> user has <throat> decided what they want to do. How do we get from here to there? I, I've done exactly that with um, mounted things and handlers. And mm -hmm. I, I can just, I, I can see it happening on your screen. And then I can see your face going, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's particularly weird because the the live preview thing remounts it. When I when I make a change and save a file, mm -hmm. it remounts that component. So a lot of times I have to just, if I'm making a big change, I have to throw away the current comparison and run another one. So yeah, that part's fun. So I've got list up and down navigation working, and I've got the category list skipping over the headers and things like that. Um, I don't have the end of the list working or the beginning. I don't know if I want to loop the keyboard shortcut. So if you press up all the way, should you automatically go all the way to the bottom of the list? I don't know. Mm. Um, I don't think I like that, but you never know. The, the part that I don't have working yet is region navigation. So moving from the sidebar into the item list, into the detail view, or from the detail view into the item list to select another one. Um, or from the category, from the item list into the category list, or from, say, an organization view from the left column to the right column, or the right column to the sidebar. Mm -hmm. All of that stuff I don't have working yet. And this is where I need to figure out exactly what we want to do here. My, what, what I want it to do is use left and right arrow keys to change regions. So if right. I'm on the item, if I'm the item, that if I'm on the item list and I'm moving up and down the item list, if I hit the left arrow key, I should be in the sidebar and mm -hmm. I can move up and down there. And I should start in the sidebar from the currently selected category, not necessarily the last focused category, because it's possible to be in the sidebar focusing objects, but not select anything, but go back to the already selected category. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I want to always, if I'm activating a region, I want to start the focus from the currently selected object in that region. Right. I'm not really clear on how to do this, um, mainly because there isn't any equivalent of like a on object entry script trigger like we have in FileMaker. Like when I, when I click into this or activate this object, fire off some code. There is kind of that is called on focus, but it only works on form elements. It doesn't work on general stuff in the DOM. So I, I've thought of a couple solutions to this. Both of them are complica compli complicated, overly complicated, <laughs> convoluted. Oh, there you go. So the first one is using the arrow keys, put everything in all the regions, so we've got sidebar, item list, detail view, org view left, org view right, and additional detail view, which is that kind of extra detail view we have in layout objects. Put all of those in a JSON array in the order that I want to traverse them, and then make a property that's called like is active or is included in the current view and set that property to true or false. So when a sidebar is visible, set that to true, and then when I'm pressing the arrow keys, I'm just cycling over that array. So I'm getting that array, filtering it by what's true, figuring out where we are in that list and going next or last in that list. Mm -hmm. um, and then activating that region, I should be able to say, and I, this is the tricky part, I'm not gonna activate the region, I'm gonna find something in that region to focus on. So mm. if I'm activating the sidebar, I need to find the m most recently selected category and focus on that. Same thing in the item list. Um, the detail card, I can just focus on any particular ID on that area. So that's one area. I could basically put that JSON array in the store and traverse it every time press left or right. The other would be to do kind of a hard-coded kind of a user mapping thing of like command one is always the sidebar 
just activates the sidebar. Command two activates the item list. Command three activates the detail list. That was my first idea. And that makes sense right up until the point we go to an organization view. Then what happens? Is command two the left part of the organization view and command three the right? Or do we keep the numbers for item list and detail view and make those four and five? Like, mm. It's one of those things that gets kind of tricky. Or is the left list command one? It depends on whether or not the sidebar is showing. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> so yeah, the numbers the numbers make sense yeah, no. based on like how many regions, scrollable regions are visible on screen. So do we do it where the numbers are hard-coded to specific things? Like one always means sidebar or does one always mean the first column? Right. That's, that's why I think the arrow keys is probably the better solution. Yeah, I concur. The only one from what you were describing that sounds... That, that I would like to make a comment on, and you can tell me whether you hate this comment or not, okay. is you were saying that you could switch columns. You, you could select category A, focus down to category C, mm-hmm. and then jump into column two, and you wanted it to be in category A versus in category C, because category A was the last selected category. Mm-hmm. And in my head, with the arrows, that the right arrow would end up doing the selection for you. Yeah. Yeah, that could be the same thing. I guess what I was thinking of in that particular edge case was defining the fact that people are using keyboard and a mouse at the same time. So they could be focusing on mm-hmm. with the arrow keys and then click into the sidebar because they see something they're interested in. Mm. So Okay. Yeah, we could still use the right arrow key to force the selection, but we still need to account for the fact that they, I I guess the point I was making is we don't want to cache the focused items. We want to cache the selected items. Yes. And I I actually found an interesting way to do this this morning. Rather than trying to keep track of what the selected category or the selected item is or the selected org row I mean, we could just write those into the store whenever you're clicking on something or activating a row. I found the better way of doing that because these items all have an is selected property in the JSON from the back end or from the Vuex store. I made a custom attribute or a, I forget the exact name for this, but you can basically make a an HTML attribute called data dash and then any string and then give it a value. So I made one called data-category-selected and set that to false, or actually set it to be bound to the isSelected property on that row. Uh So as you select things automatically, that property changes true and false, and then we're querying that specific element in the DOM. So when I hit, when I select the category region, I'm I'm getting that element by that specific attribute, and there's only one of them, and then just activating that. Okay. Kind of a weird way of doing it, but uh, pretty interesting. So yeah, navigating between regions. Um, Right now I'm suppressing the tab key. I need to work on that. The reason I'm suppressing is because it's the tab order. I basically have, you know, tabs, one through 30 in the sidebar and then tabs one through you know however many items are in the item list but the if i just tab through them in tab order it goes one one two two three three four four. (laughs) okay gotcha so need to fix that i basically need to have the tab and shift tab keyboard uh keystrokes do the same thing as the up and down arrows right but only conditionally when the when a list is in focus. So when you're on the configuration screen, tabs should just cycle through the buttons mm-hmm. on the screen. It's like, you know, select file A, select file B, run or begin comparison, things like that. But yeah, you should watch my time on this. Okay. This particular. You, you have not gone too far yet. Yeah, not yet. So yeah, uh, the other thing I've been working on is been I finished up a, an A-frame course on Udemy. 
And I think this one is particularly noteworthy because I learned a ton of stuff from it. It was not a not the typical kind of course I do. This wasn't a tutorial of how to build something in Unity or in A-Frame. It was more of a complete tour of everything that A-Frame has to offer a little bit at a time, which is a different way of learning. Mm -hmm. But the reason it's notable is in the past, I've had a tendency to kind of get bogged down, like stuck in tutorial hell, where I'm just spending way too much time on tutorials and not really making anything. And I think I went to the other extreme this time because it took me four months to do a seven hour course. <laughs> and not because it was like really dense or anything or because I was slacking off, but because I would do a 10 minute video and then spend a day or a weekend playing with that latest concept and making scenes and making demos with it and stuff. Okay. So I ended up getting a ton out of it. I mean, especially for a $10 course. So I haven't really built anything interesting since the last episode. I've basically just been playing with different concepts and started playing with a new hand tracking experimental feature in A-Frame on the Oculus Quest. One thing that I really learned, I guess the biggest thing that I learned at the end of the course was how to make A-Frame components and kind of what A-Frame components are and... I kind of knew that, you know, I knew A-Frame was based on 3JS and, but I didn't quite understand exactly what that meant. So if I were to make a WebXR project that is just in 3JS, I can do that. I don't have to use A-Frame at all. I can write all of this in 3JS and it would be kind of like the code that we wrote in D3, where you are defining a single kind of placeholder div and then a whole bunch of JavaScript that is going to stick something in that div mm -hmm. at one time. That's kind of what 3JS and Babylon.js do. Like, here's a little, you know, here's a tiny little wrapper of HTML and everything else is happening in JavaScript elsewhere. And it's all happening in WebGL. A-Frame allows you to continue to lay out your entire scene in HTML. And each one of those HTML elements is defined with a bunch of components that define its you know, it's geometry and it's material and position and transform and all that stuff. And unless you be much more explicit, so much more compositional of how you're creating your scene and how you're interacting with it. And there's an entire event system built in where you can define, I mean, there's a bunch of pre-built events and animations and ways to link things together and, you know, physics and collisions and all that kind of stuff that you would expect and you do it all through it kind of an event style syntax where you're defining here's here's the event i'm listening for and here's what should happen like fire off this javascript function or activate this particular property on this related object that type of thing so a-frame components are little bits of 3js code that you define as basically an HTML attribute. Like when you're done with these, you can use them in HTML elements as an attribute, just like you would with a little bit of CSS. Um, so kind of like in Vue, Vue is defining a whole bunch of custom attributes that we're using, like vbind. I think I think they call them directives in Vue, mm -hmm. but it's the same kind of thing in A-Frame. So I've learned how to do that, learn how to create those, um, there's an entire component library on A-Frame's website of stuff that people have built. And I'm pretty confident in being able to kind of build any component that I want. The part that I haven't figured out yet is how to register those components when I'm working with a view app. And I just don't really know where to do that. Um, I couldn't get it working by just defining it in the methods region of, a, of like a view component. And the, the only way I've gotten it working so far, kind of, was basically just writing a JavaScript file that exports itself and then importing that into the view app, you know, kind of at the base directory level. So just like you would import a dependency, the same way that I'm importing A-Frame, mm -hmm. write components that way. And that's what I played around with with the hand tracking demos 
and I've kind of got it working, but not really. Um, there are certain things about that where I'm not sure if I'm just missing something syntactically, but like some of the components that I define there, if I use them on an entity, the entity just doesn't show up in my scene at all. It doesn't make it into the DOM at all. And I'm not sure if view, like the compiler part is just catching that and saying, hey, there's an error here. We're not even gonna render anything. Like I'm not getting any console logs. I'm not, I'm getting a total absence of that thing from the scene. So I could say, here's a cube with these three attributes and here's a sphere with these two. And here's a, uh, a torus with this custom attribute and my custom attribute or my torus just won't even show up in the scene. Like the entire HTML object, the A entity just won't even be there in the DOM at all when I go to inspect the element. So yeah, I need to figure out what that's mm -hmm. about. The other thing, the other idea is like, do I even need to be doing this type of, these types of scenes in a view app in the first place? If I've got this, in, this component system that gives me the same way to kind of abstract code into smaller bits of JavaScript and I combine them together in A-frame HTML, do I need view at all for these types of things? And I, I, that's a question that I need to ask myself and figure out over the next couple of weeks. But uh, that's kind of what I'm looking into next of like, I, I think I still want a node backend. Like I like the idea mm -hmm. of hosting this on a node server, mainly because I've built enough PHP, like full stop. <laughs> <laughs> Like there's a lot of things I like about PHP. Setting up a dev environment for PHP is not one of them. And every project is a nightmare. Whereas this node stuff, it's got its problems, but it's so easy compared to trying to set up a PHP environment and keep PHP environments from clashing with one another and destroying one another. I want, I mean, the main reason I want to have a node environment on the back end is because I want to be able to write backend code that can load stuff from a database, load stuff from an API, make, you know, CRUD requests, um, and then do some kind of two-way communication between the back end and the front end so that when I can get data from a database into a scene, load the scene, interact with the data, have the changes that I'm making in the scene react back to the back end and back to the database. And that's all stuff I need to figure out how to do. The other total monkey wrench direction is just go back to unity and do all this in unity and start exporting stuff for WebAssembly. Uh -huh. it's like it there could be a, a day in the not too distant future where i'm writing c sharp again in unity for the web <laughs> which would be a weird way of doing that but yeah i don't know how i don't know what's available when you do stuff like that but i know that they've got basics of that working yeah i'd also be curious to see how big the output looks <laughs> oh yeah it's huge oh it is yeah even the, the basic ones i tried a couple of years ago it's like you know a 250 meg export right for the same thing i'm writing in a frame that's like you know 150 kilobytes <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that, that's one thing i really like about a frame so far is like it there's almost no barrier to entry for trying an idea. It's just like making an HTML file, import a frame, and then open it up in a browser. There's a little live preview plugin in, in a VS code that I use because you do have to actually serve it over a web server, not just open the file. Yeah. Having that low barrier to entry means that I have tried so many more things. Like there is no like make a project, make a directory, Define project settings, set up the mm -hmm. camera, import all this stuff. It's just like, I don't have to do any of that. Just make a new text file. And as a result, I probably made a thousand scenes over the last couple of months. <laughs> it is just try little things. Yeah, that is really freeing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's where I am with A-Frame. Kind of everywhere and nowhere. <laughs> so there's a couple of events going on this week. Uh-huh. We're not necessarily a uh, tech news show, but they're a little notable. One is there's a there's an Apple product event tomorrow, 
which normally we would call this the iPhone event, but I guess people are saying this isn't the iPhone event. I heard somebody refer to it as the Apple Watch event. Yeah. I... I could... That is interesting. <laughs> um, I'm not particularly in dire need of a new Apple device, although an Apple Watch is probably the thing that I'm most interested in. Because I've got a Series 3 now, which is... I guess a three-year-old device at this point. And it works, but it's kind of sluggish and the battery doesn't last that long. And I've been kind of de-emphasizing my iPhone recently and wondering if my if my Apple Watch was faster if I would use it more for stuff. Like if I could just start listening to podcasts directly from the Apple Watch and mm. music and things like that, where currently I basically just wear it for exercise stuff because it just kind of annoys me for everything else. But I'm on the fence whether or not I actually like completely deprecate the idea of a smartwatch and just stop wearing it entirely or get a new one and start using it for more stuff. But uh, I guess we'll see what they have to announce. Yeah, the, if they if they have... The, the big thing for me would be new medical diagnostics. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. they, there was a discussion at one point that they had figured out some way to do a pretty accurate like blood sugar monitor mm-hmm. and I'm not diabetic, but that kind of data is fascinating to me and yeah. it is fascinating enough to me to get me to buy cool hardware that can do it. But if it's just a sharper screen and a longer battery life and you know, here's some new software features we added and a bunch of new exercise types. Nah. Yeah, so the Series 4 and 5 have a bunch of sensors that I don't have in the Series 3. It's a bunch of heart sensors, more advanced heart sensors for like mm-hmm. the... Is it... EKG, Fibrillation and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, and also like a new um, noise detection thing. But... Uh, I don't have any of that. So it'll be a pretty big upgrade going from Series 3 to Series 6. And uh, the it would be interesting to see if they've got some kind of blood oxygen sensor. That would be really timely. <laughs> uh, if they haven't done that, it'll almost... Well, I mean, the time delay on product development. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, really, I just want an Apple TV, like a really nice powerful apple tv with a good remote that's the thing i want them to release because the apple tv i have an apple tv 4k like i own one it's been at my friend's house for six months because i was annoyed by the remote and i've been using my playstation for everything but i don't know a nice apple tv that's more powerful and has a better remote and frankly or considerably less powerful with like Nothing but some TV streaming stuff on it. That could be fine too. But yeah, more powerful. It's going to be more game stuff. Um, I don't need a new iPad. And I doubt we're going to see the new Macs this event. No. But that would be cool. So the other wild card is the AR glasses. that I doubt is this year. I think that's probably a next year or the year after that thing. But, you know, if they do... Like they did with the Apple Watch, this could be the event. Like if they're launching AR headsets in first quarter of next year, then this could be the event where they announce it like they did with the Apple Watch six months early. Right. And maybe they do some kind of dev kit for developers. Give me an AR headset. (laughs) Yeah, it would be really weird to announce that now with a developer thing when DevCon was just a couple of months ago. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, that would, that would be weird, but Apple periodically does weird stuff. So I can't say they wouldn't do it. Yeah. So the, in some ways, the bigger event for me this week is, I guess it's called Facebook Connect. It used to be called Oculus Connect, but this year it's called Facebook Connect and that is happening. So the Apple event is on Tuesday, the Oculus event is on Wednesday and the Oculus event is considerably more interesting to me because of the type of stuff I'm working on. Um, Supposedly there's an Oculus Quest 2 coming. There's actually a whole bunch of videos leaked this morning 
for what that stuff is going to be like mm-hmm. hardware wise. I'm more interested in see what this thing is capable of because they've they've gotten so much out of the current quest. Like they they shipped a device that can do you know these many things, and then over the year and a half they added so many new capabilities to it in software. Like it's just an astounding pace of development. So I'm like that. That's the stuff that they've decided to give us with the current hardware and software release. What have they been holding back for the next hardware? Mm. So that could be really interesting. But yeah, that's on Wednesday. The, you know, their keynote, like their main keynotes have always been kind of part marketing. You know, you see a bunch of Facebook execs kind of drone on about stuff for a while. And then... You get Michael Abrash for a while, who is super interesting. And then there's a whole second keynote for the John Carmack keynote. And that's the part that's absolutely fascinating. That's like the best event <laughs> of the year, as far as I'm concerned, where basically John Carmack just stands and talks until they make him stop. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting because there's no physical convention this year, so that they don't have to drag him off stage. So like, he's just live streaming from somewhere. Do they need to make him stop? And how long will he go if nobody stops him? <laughs> like, does he just get hungry and hang up? <laughs> so, yeah, that, that should be fun. I'm not sure if I'll watch that live or not because it's happening relatively late in my world. But, yeah, a lot going on. Give me a new VR headset. I mean, I'm definitely going to buy the Quest 2 whenever it's released. I don't know if, it, if they're releasing it now or for the holiday season or what, but, you know jokey intro to the podcast aside i will definitely be buying that as soon as possible <laughs> well joe i'll i'll commit to you now if if you don't decide that the quest 2 sucks and isn't worth bothering i'll go ahead and get one nice definitely should if it's good it seems like it's going to be good my main question is is it going to be lighter mm. like i am all for you know, better screen, more powerful graphics, more powerful CPU, all this stuff is great. The first one is just a little front heavy and it was uncomfortable for a lot of people. I kind of got around it by getting a counterweight for it, but that was an inelegant solution. <laughs> you, you make it feel less bad by making it heavier. Yeah. Yeah. Not not a great idea. So yeah, I want it to be way more comfortable, lighter, more <laughs> Quest like, to now with included counterweight yeah i hope not <laughs> that would be that would be an embarrassing loss <laughs> although like the early prototypes of this device like the santa cruz device like maybe oculus connect 4 or something they were showing prototypes of a standalone headset and they had the compute and the battery on the back of the headset so it was kind of like self-balancing that way. But mm-hmm. there was, you know, a bunch of wires going over the head. So what they came up with was a way more efficient design, but ended up being very front-heavy. Yeah, ergonomics are very important to me and for all the uh, pain and posture stuff, especially if it's a device you're going to be wearing more and more. Like the Oculus Connect I have now has some basic... Um, pass-through features where you can kind of see your environment around you and it's just useful enough to like find your position in a room or find your controllers if you've been using hand tracking and you're looking for your controllers you wouldn't want to work like that all day um like you it does like interesting things like if a dog comes into your play area you don't step on the dog because you can see the dog in vr Mm -hmm. so it's good for things like that but it's not particularly high resolution it's all black and white i wonder if this new device is actually going to have like photorealistic quality cameras where you can actually transition between the virtual world and your meat space reality. That could be really interesting, particularly for work. Like if I can just stand in VR, stand in like fake VR at my standing desk writing code. I don't know if I'd be able to see the code on a computer monitor through that camera, but if I could be writing on a virtual screen and then directly hop into a scene from there that could be really cool so the oculus stuff have um eye tracking not currently no okay i don't know if they're working on that 
But yeah, that could be fascinating. I'm also like a little skeptical about all this stuff. Like I want the technology, but there's also like the, you know, the Facebook asterisks of all this. Like, do I want Facebook knowing where I'm looking? <laughs> this is one of those reasons I want Apple to make a VR headset and an AR headset. And, or like even Microsoft, like you've got your, your Windows Mixed Reality platform. Make a Windows-based standalone headset. Like put a Windows machine in an arm, like a little Windows arm computer in a headset. Mm-hmm. Kind of like they did with the HoloLens, but make it a VR headset or a Mixed Reality headset that could do both. But yeah, they're they're busy making weird Android phones. 